Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Jehocraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we are set to continue our exploration, our study on the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 38, and as I said when we were together last time, really chapters 37 to 50 is this last epic in the book of Genesis, and for all intents and purposes, it deals with Joseph, but early on here in chapter 38, we kind of hit the eject button, if you will, to talk about Judah and Tamar. Now, you've heard me say already that God, in relationship to the firstborn blessing, has a preference for the younger and the weaker brother over and above the older and the stronger, right? This preference for the younger and weaker over and above the the older and stronger really runs itself like a subplot. And this evening, we will touch upon, well, by my count, the fifth time that we see that as Perez is favored over Zerah, the firstborn of Judah by Tamar. Chapter 38 is all about Judah and Tamar. And the reason why the spotlight turns ever so briefly from Joseph to Judah is that besides hinting that Israel is beginning to be assimilated into its Canaanite surroundings, the chapter, in essence, my friends, explains how Judah becomes the father of Perez, the genealogical ancestor of King David, and ultimately, of course, then, who but Jesus the Messiah. So one of our points of emphasis this evening will explain the heavy, heavy significance of Genesis chapter 38 in relationship to the opening chapter to the Gospel of Matthew, and also a very important moral teaching that comes from Genesis 38 that will have us talking about some pretty sensitive subject matter. But brothers and sisters, if we are going to do this study right, we have to get inside of these verses. And so, again, this evening, God willing, if not this evening, tomorrow, we will get into the sin of Onan. All right, so (laughs) why uh, this apparent eject button from the narrative surrounding Joseph? Well, it is clear from the author that this genealogical connection needs to be made, the genealogical connection between Perez to David and ultimately, of course, David to Jesus. Uh, The where and the who was and is, we could say, very important to the Jewish mind, so important that the Gospel of Matthew opens up with this message of repent and believe? No, but Christ's pedigree. Isn't it a funny thing that we read in the opening verse of the Gospel of Matthew, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David? Why this emphasis on Abraham and David? Why doesn't Matthew talk about this great message of repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Why isn't Matthew talking about the love of God? Well, he wants us to see that connection to the Old Testament. So much so that you can say one of the great themes to the Gospel of Matthew is Christ's lineage to the son of David. In point of fact, we see Christ identified as not the Lamb of God, 
as not the Prince of Peace, as not the King of Kings, as not the Alpha and Omega, but in the Gospel of Matthew, the Son of David eight times. Eight times is Jesus Christ identified as the Son of David. And all of this is pertinent because if you go back into 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 and following, we have that great covenant between God and David. That great covenant that said, in your line, I will establish my dynasty for a period of time. No, forever, for all eternity. So Jesus Christ coming from the line of David was very important. And for Matthew, if you're going to speak to the line of David, you have to make a farther connection. And so every name mentioned in the opening verses to the Gospel of Matthew is very important. And one of those, and why we're talking about this right now this evening, is Perez. Open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. I suppose you didn't think we'd be talking about the Gospel of Matthew today, but this is what we do here on Seas of Truth. If you're going to understand the Old Testament, you always have to be thinking about the New Testament. If you're going to understand the New Testament, you're going to always have to be thinking about the Old Testament. The old reveals the new and the, and the new the old. If you're going to understand the promise to the fulfillment, well, you have to understand the fulfillment. And if you're going to understand the fulfillment to the promise, you, you have to understand the promise. All right, so turning to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're just going to read a few verses here, but I do want to read those few verses, those opening verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of who but Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashan, and Nashan the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of the king of David. You may ask, why is Jesus Christ called the Lion of the tribe of Judah? Because from that line, all the way through David to Joseph, do we have who but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the fulfillment to the promise found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. Now, if I'm a Palestinian Christian Jew reading the Gospel of Matthew for the first time, am I excited or would I be more excited if I heard about the actual message of Jesus Christ, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand? Brothers and sisters, I am ecstatic, ecstatic to discover who Jesus is in relationship to David, in relationship to, to Perez, in relationship to Judah, and all the way back to Abraham, because this is the promise to the fulfillment. If I'm a faithful early Christian, I'm reading this ecstatic because I'm quickly discovering that in my spiritual pedigree, I have a direct line all the way back to the beginning. So why does the Gospel of Matthew focus in on this genealogy? Because he wants us to understand, not only is God keeping his promise, right? He, he's a father who keeps his promises, but also that we might reflect into who we are and where we come from. You know, it's always a fascinating thing 
to be in the middle of a conversation where a family is talking about their family tree. I have been in a number of these conversations, uh, being an educator of junior high for oh five years. I found myself in many of these conversations because it, it was part of our learning. You know, where do we come from, both in our spiritual and physical pedigree? And to just watch families talk about discovering where they came from was to see more than just a light bulb going off, but this renewed sense of purpose, this renewed sense of, you want to know what? To know where my ancestors came from is to really appreciate not only who I am, but where I am going. To see the tenaciousness, the tenacity of all the sacrifices my ancestors made that I might have what I have today encourages me to move forward to make the necessary sacrifices for my own grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren. There was just a sense of purpose. To know where you come from is to better understand who you are and ultimately to be renewed in where you are going. That's the value in a family tree. And again, we're talking about this because the spiritual family tree is all the more important. To know that in our faith, we belong to this genealogy that goes all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Adam, really, is widely significant. That the story of salvation history isn't just a story about Adam, isn't just a story about Noah, isn't just a story about Abraham, Moses, David, and all the rest, but a story that includes you and I because we belong to God who is family and the church that is the family of God. This ought to get us excited to read this text in the first century that Perez is a part of this line. Yes, do you remember that story from Genesis chapter 38? Ah, it's all, it's all making sense now. The author of the book of Genesis, as we believe it to be Moses, there is a reason why Moses hit the eject button ever so briefly. Because in the end, it's more than just an eject button, but a button he hit with a mind's eye towards God's providential care. One that would include this line. This line that would give birth to the line of the tribe of Judah through Perez. And who else? Who was Perez the father to? But Hezron, and Hezron the father to Ram, and Ram the father to Aminadab, and so on and so forth, right? All the way down to David. And this Toledoth, as it is called in the Hebrew, this genealogy is explained further. We don't have time to get into all of this now. It's there. Read it. You know it, that first gospel to Matthew, that opening chapter to the gospel of Matthew. So there's a reason why we have this interlude in chapter 38. Because in the end, it is very important to the larger scope of salvation history and, and those in the future appreciating where they came from, that they can make the necessary connections. And in making the necessary connections, they might have a stronger sense of where they come from in their spiritual pedigree, in their spiritual family tree, so as to better understand not only who they are, but where they are going, that, that they have a place, that we have a place, that you have a place, that I have a place in salvation history. And this, my friends is exciting stuff. Okay? All right. Now, for the remainder of our program, 
I want to turn our attention to the infamous, really now, sin of owning. And this is going to have us, to some degree, talking about some sensitive subject matter, as we will read about it in verses 1 to 11. For this evening, as we reflect into these verses, I wanted to pull from an article that can be found on Catholic Answers from Father Brian Harrison. He touches upon this text, I think, in in beautiful detail, so we will kind of underscore his article, kind of reflect with it, and go from there. All right, so if you have your Bibles out and you were in the Gospel of Matthew, why don't you turn back to Genesis chapter 38? Let me, before we go there, verses 1 to 11, let me read verses 27 to 30, because these are the verses that speak to the birth of Perez. So let us just do that real quick here, so that we're familiar with these verses. This is the end of chapter 38. When the time of her delivery came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and bound on his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself! Therefore his name was called Perez. Perez literally means breach, by the way. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So there you have the birth of Perez, and ultimately Perez receiving that firstborn blessing from Judah by Tamar. Okay, now, back to chapter 38, verses 1 to 11, and this reading and exploration of it. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned into a certain Adalamite, whose name was Hirah. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shuah. He married her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. Again, she conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. She was in Shezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground, lest he should give offspring to his brother. And what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, And he slew him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house, till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Okay, so what do we do with this text? The classic Jewish commentators, who can scarcely be accused of ignorance regarding Hebrew language, uh, customs, law, and biblical literary genres, certainly saw in this passage that we just read a condemnation of unnatural intercourse. A typical traditional Jewish commentary put it this way, Onan misused the organs God gave him for propagating the race to unnaturally satisfy his own lust, and therefore he was deserving of death. That is what you're going to get from most interpretations, most orthodox interpretations. 
This is undoubtedly in accord with the natural impression which most unprejudiced readers will draw from the text of Genesis 38. But the question is posed, is this first impression correct? Is the truth maybe really more subtle? Was Onan perhaps slain merely for refusing to give offspring to his deceased brother's wife? Well, in answering this question, one must take cognizance of a number of significant facts, to the least of which is that the penalty subsequently laid down in the law of Moses for a refusal to comply with the leveret marriage precept was only a relatively mild public humiliation in the form of a brief ceremony of of, uh, indignation. Why do we talk about this? Those who say his only offense was an infringement of the leveret marriage custom need to explain why such an offense was punished so much more drastically in the case of Onan than it subsequently was under the Mosaic law. If anything, really, we would tend to expect the contrary, right? That after the law was formalized as part of the Deuteronomic Code, its violation might be chastised more severely than before, not more mildly, huh? Indeed, a further problem faces this conventional modern reading of the passage. If simple refusal to give legal offspring to his deceased brother were Onan's only offense, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but it seems unlikely that the text would have spelled out the crass physical details of his contraceptive act we read in verse 9. The delicacy and modesty of ancient Hebrews in referring to morally upright sexual activity really helps us to see the significance of this verse. Scripture always refers to licit married intercourse in an oblique way. Uh, The phrase is going into, or one's wife uh, knowing one's spouse. When the language becomes somewhat more explicit, lying with someone or uncovering his nakedness, these are the kinds of references that deal with explicit, sinful, shameful sexual acts. And really, we could say from this analytical vantage point, the link between choice of words and moral evaluation in the Hebraic mentality is a point of revelation for us and a point of departure, really. Broadly speaking, the sacred writer's disapproval of different kinds of genital activity increases with the degree of explicitness with which they are described. Sometime back, I was reading a a Hebrew scholar on this point, and it is kind of a unanimous interpretation where the more explicit it gets, the more grave the act is, right? I wish we had this interpretation when we go to interpret the text today, because if we did, we wouldn't be watering down the text we read. So, When sexuality is treated in its most sublime character, marriage as a sacred mystery symbolizing God's covenantal love with his people, the Bible's allusions to the conjugal act are predominantly indirect and even to some extent allegorical. And again, the implications of this for the book of Genesis and what we are talking about now here in chapter 38, verse uh, 9 where Onan's sexual act is described in starkly explicit terms, are clear. 
So in the view of those who would interpret this text to mean something other than what the text actually says, we'll come up short. No, we are asked to believe that Onan committed no sinful act. Rather, his sin was to refrain from acting appropriately toward his deceased brother because of a selfish disposition. But why, my friends, in that case, does the text describe Onan's sin as a positive action, right? He did a detestable thing. Coming directly after the author has mentioned what is certainly an outward act, spilling the seed. These words, this verse, indicate a causal link between the act as such and the wrath and punishment of God. Cause and effect, my friends, when you apply just that more classical sense of logic and, and deductive reasoning, what you have is something much more than what a modern interpreter of this text would suggest. I mean, really think about it. It's not as if the Old Testament was lacking in concepts or words to express sins of one's interior attitude, when that is the kind of sin the authors had in mind. So once again, my friends, if we are going to really examine this text for what it is, we must ask the question, what evidence is there that this hardness of heart would have been seen in Onan's time as sufficient to merit death? If today's revisionist interpretation and interpretations are right in claiming that spilling the seed on the ground is not per se censored in this text, it would follow that even if Onan had declined to marry Tamar and, and so abstained from intimacy of any kind with her, this complete abstinence would have been viewed by the Genesis author by Moses as no less offensive to God than the course of action which, which Onan chose in reality, right? But what we have been pointing out is that such a conclusion leaves unexplained the relative leniency of Deuteronomy 25, which of course spells out the penalizing of such offenses against the, the Leveret marriage custom. My friends, as Judeo-Christian tradition has always insisted, wasting the seed by intrinsically sterile types of genital action violates that natural law to which all men, Jew, Gentile alike, have access by virtue of their very humanity, of their very humanness. This, of course, will explain perfectly why Onan's sexual action in of itself would be presented in Scripture as meriting the most severe divine judgment. It was a perverted act, one of life-suppressing lust. Indeed, over and above its prohibition by natural law, as Genesis chapter 1 verses 27 and following reminds us, such deliberately sterilized pleasure-seeking could have well been discerned as contravening that great call, increase and multiply. And here, as Father Brian Harrison does, we ought to give the last word to Pope Pius XI who, in quoting the greatest of the Church Fathers, summed up and reaffirmed this unbroken tradition in his encyclical on Christian marriage. The Pontiff Pius XI gave an authoritative interpretation of the biblical text we talked about this evening, which not only confirms the tradition, but also is itself confirmed by impartial and historically well-informed uh, exegesis, that is, 
good interpretation of the text. He says this, Wherefore, it is not surprising that the sacred scriptures themselves also bear witness to the fact that the divine majesty attends this unspeakable depravity with the utmost detestation, sometimes having punished it with death, as St. Augustine recalls, for it is illicit and shameful for a man to lie with even his lawful wife in such a way as to prevent conception of offspring. This is what Onan, son of Judah, used to do, and for that God slew him. Right. So essentially, what we're talking about, my friends, in the end, is just that unswerving openness to the creative power that is God and how he uses us, and ultimately that the two becoming one isn't just about the bonding, but also the babies, and genuinely and truly being open to that. So, okay, all right, very good. I'm looking up at the clock, and we are out of time. I know we, we hit some hard subject matter this evening, but certainly some subject matter that we needed to talk about in the light of chapter 38, verses 1 to 11. I thought it was important to engage some of the explicit verses there, and so much more could be said, but I do think we, we hit enough there. If you have any questions, comments, observations, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com. As always, you can go to my website too at joholcraft.org. Again, that's two L's, H-O-L-L-C-R-F-T dot org. Just hit the contact link button there and send your message on its way. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.